yesterday, um, Thea was telling me how one of her dollies, uh, whose name is Dolly the Della, she named her that, had a, a broken leg. And so she was fixing Dolly the Della's leg, and she was showing me how she was doing it. And as she was doing it, it was so cute uh, to watch her doing that. And Lauren walks over, and I'm like, Lauren, look at her. I'm like, can't you just imagine Thea being like an amazing, God-honoring doctor or dentist because she likes like putting her hand in like your mouth sometimes too and like looking around. And so I was thinking about that in that moment. And I'm like, couldn't you just imagine that? And then I think Lauren at that moment asks Thea, Thea, would you like that? Do you think you would want to be that at some point? Do you, would you want to be a doctor or a dentist? And then Thea looks up at us, and she's like, I just want to help Dolly Dadella. <laughs> it's amazing how in little moments of life like that you, you get illustrations of biblical truths as soon as that happened I thought of what Jesus would tell his disciples essentially in the text before us they have a question about eschatology they don't really know it's about eschatology meaning last things the study of last things they're asking about that and Jesus instead of letting them just be fixated on the future he redirects them to the responsibilities in the present and reminded me of what she said in that moment. It's as though she said, I'm not worried about, you know, the future right now. I just want to help Dolly Dadella. And it's as though Jesus was telling his disciples, don't worry about when the kingdom is going to be restored to Israel. Don't worry about these, these eschatological questions you have. You're going to be my witnesses. You've got work to do. You're going to wait now in Jerusalem, and then you're going to work and be my witnesses. We'll see that when we get there. First, a little bit of a recap of where we were last week. Last week, we looked into what was essentially, it's often regarded as the prologue to the book of Acts, the opening three verses. We studied last week about how Luke is the spirit-inspired author of the book of Acts. In the beginning of this book, he says, in his former account, which was a reference to the gospel of Luke. So the Gospel of Luke was, if you will, Volume 1. The Book of Acts is, if you will, Volume 2. It's the next account. He's writing to the same man he wrote the Gospel of Luke to, Theophilus, probably a Roman magistrate, maybe a new believer. At the minimum, he is an interested person in the things of Christ, but likely a new believer. And then Luke does not overlook his Theophilus. He's not so concerned with the world that he overlooks Theophilus. Instead, he pours out himself, as it were, for this man, writes the Gospel of Luke writes the book of Acts, and then through that ministry to that man, he would end up ministering to the world. Just as a quick reminder to us, don't be so consumed with the thought of winning the world that you overlook the Theophilus that's right in front of you. It may be that through the ministry that you render to those right before you, that many people in the world will be ministered to through you in that ministry, through you reaching out to the, the Theophilus that's right ahead of you. Well, back to the prologue. In the prologue, you remember that Luke said that his first account, the former account, was about all that Jesus began to both do and teach. As though to say, everything you see in the Gospel of Luke is what Jesus began to do and teach. And when you come to the book of Acts, it's what Jesus is continuing to do and teach. An amazing way to think of the ministry of Christ. His incarnation, we know, and then leading up to the, the, the beginning of his earthly ministry, and then during that time, during his earthly ministry, he would minister and he would do and he would teach. But even after, after he ascended on high, his ministry continues. He is building his church, and the gates of Hades cannot prevail against him. It's a little bit of the, the rundown of the prologue. We remember that Luke also referenced in verse 3. He referenced Jesus' death. 
He referenced Jesus' resurrection, that after his suffering, he presented himself alive with many infallible proofs. We considered some instances of Jesus presenting himself alive in some of those infallible and convincing proofs. He showed the disciples that he was the same Jesus who came out of the grave, who went into the grave. He's the same Jesus that came out of the grave. He had the nail prints in his hands. He was not a disembodied spirit. He was able to eat food in their presence. He offered them the opportunity to touch him and see that he was flesh and bone and not a disembodied spirit. So over the course of 40 days, for intervals during those 40 days, He showed himself alive to them, so as essentially to prepare them, so that their roots of their conviction would go down deeper and deeper, so they'd be prepared to be witnesses of his resurrection, and that they'd be prepared to endure the suffering that they were going to endure for his name. So that's essentially the prologue. That's where we were. But the time was approaching for his departure. So now, as Luke is about to give us this narrative, prologue ends, we're picking up essentially where the Gospel of Luke left off. We begin in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, where we read, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For truly... For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So if you look at the beginning of verse 4, that phrase, and being assembled together with them, is rendered in some translations as eating with them. That may have been the context of this pre-ascension assembling. We don't know exactly, but whatever the exact situation was, there Jesus is. Perhaps eating with his disciples, but he's with them, he's assembling with them, and he's about to instruct them before he's going to depart from them. He commanded them, we see again looking at verse 4, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem. I want to call your attention to this, because this detail is not insignificant. This was part of the plan of God that needed to be fulfilled. And it can be easily overlooked. If you were to look in Luke chapter 24, verses 46 and 47, you would see that Jesus said that it was necessary that he had to suffer and die and rise again, but that repentance and remission of sins should be preached to all nations in his name, beginning at Jerusalem. It was part of the plan. It was part of God's prophesied prescription Maybe you look at some Old Testament texts like Psalm 110, verse 2. Maybe you look at other ones like Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3, Micah chapter 4, verse 2, in the picture of the law going forth from Zion, from Jerusalem, whatever the exact correlation would be, this was part of the plan and it needed to be fulfilled. That the law would go forth out of Zion, that the gospel proclamation would begin in Jerusalem. Interesting that it would begin in Jerusalem as well. The place that stoned the prophets and those who were sent to her. The place where Christ was rejected. He knew, you see this in Luke chapter 18, he knew he had to go to Jerusalem and he was going to suffer many things there and he would be crucified outside of the city. And in that place where people with lawless hands put the Son of God to death, there would be the first place that the gospel would be preached. Oh, the grace of God illustrated even in that. So it was prophecy that needed to be fulfilled. Luke 24, verse 47. 
It was also a witness to God's grace that in the same place where Christ was crucified, just outside the city, where he was rejected, the city that he wept over, that that would be the first place to hear the gospel proclamation. And I just want to say, I think it's a good reminder that God doesn't forget the fine print of his promises. He knows them all, and he keeps every single one of them. He crosses his T's, he dots his I's, No stone of a divine promise will go unfulfilled in his time. Now, second, he commanded the apostles to not depart from Jerusalem. Now, think about that. Despite all the training they had, despite all the experience that they had, despite the cities that they had gone to during Jesus' earthly ministry, despite everything that they saw him do, despite being witnesses of the resurrection, despite hearing from him during the interval of 40 days as he's preaching to them and teaching them things concerning the kingdom, they can't leave Jerusalem. They have to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit empowers them. If they were to go without the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, they'd be like flashlights without batteries. They wouldn't be able to do what they were called to do. Their learning would not be enough. Their experiences over the past three years wouldn't make the difference. Why? It's the Holy Spirit that makes the difference. Even right now, in your hearing, it's the Holy Spirit that makes the difference. In my proclamation, it's the Holy Spirit that makes the difference. If I managed to conceive of the most eloquent and detailed sermon ever, if I were to be able to do that, and if I delivered it to you with excellence, humanly speaking, it would not avail anything apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. If you were to listen with all of your mind to the best that you could in your own human ability, it would avail nothing apart from the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that makes the difference. And so Jesus told them, They were to wait. And look how he identifies the Holy Spirit here. A lot of titles for Jesus to be seen in the Scriptures, but there's also titles of the Holy Spirit seen in the Scriptures. Here's one of them. They were to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. Now, Peter referred to this, at least one of the instances of the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament in his Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2. Lord willing, we'll study that in further detail in the days ahead. But when the Holy Spirit had been poured out on Pentecost, Peter said, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he went on to quote Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. Furthermore, and later on in that same sermon, Peter said, and this is in Acts chapter 2, verse 33, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this which you now see and hear. So Peter, on the day of Pentecost, is saying that you have Christ at the right hand of the Father. And this is so Trinitarian. It's so beautifully Trinitarian that the Son receives from the Father the Holy Spirit to pour out and to give to the church. And of course, that's the way it would be. From the Father, through the Son, and to the church. But again, the Spirit is regarded as the promise of the Father here. But Jesus also said, you've heard of this promise of the Father. You've heard of the Holy Spirit through me. Now, there's more instances than the upper room discourse, which is found in John chapter 14 through John chapter 16. But in those passages, we see um, Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as another helper that would abide with them forever. John 14, 16. Jesus called the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Truth, John 14, 17. 
Jesus called him the Holy Spirit, John 14, 26. He told his apostles that when the Holy Spirit came, he would teach them all things and bring to their remembrance all things that he had said to them, John 15, 26. He said that the Holy Spirit would testify of Jesus. He said that the Holy Spirit would guide them into all truth, John 16, 17. Jesus even told them that it was better for them that he was going away because if he did not depart, then the Holy Spirit would not come. So when you see Jesus saying the promise of the Father, you're thinking of Old Testament texts like Joel 2. You're thinking of Ezekiel 36. But then when you think of Jesus saying, you've heard this from me, you're thinking of places like John 14 through John 16. And I want to stop here for a minute because I think it's an important opportunity for us to be reminded of something we need to be reminded of. When Jesus told his disciples in John 16, 7, that it was better for them if he went away, Because if he didn't go away, then the Holy Spirit wouldn't come. He prefaced that by saying, I tell you the truth. Just my opinion. Just an observation here. I think that was a really helpful preface. Because I think a lot of people, I've heard Christians say this. You've probably said it at some point in your life. Really? It's better for me that Jesus has gone up to the Father in heaven and he's not here in my presence, and I have the Holy Spirit. And that's great and all, but what if Jesus were right in front of me? How could it be better that Jesus is not here and he's up there? Wouldn't it be better if Jesus was right here before my eyes? And if you've ever thought that, and if you've ever asked that question, it's because we tend to, whether we realize it or not, undervalue and underappreciate the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we tend to overvalue our own sense of wisdom and righteousness. Do you understand if you did not have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you would not perceive Jesus rightly. If you and I did not have the Holy Spirit inside of us, our lives would be filled with weeds of wickedness. And we would think those weeds were beautiful. We'd say, what a beautiful garden full of weeds of wickedness. And we would think it was beautiful. If you didn't have the Holy Spirit inside of you, if I didn't have the Holy Spirit inside of me, we would be like Jehoiakim, that king who when he got the prophecy of Jeremiah, what did he do? Cut it up and he threw it into the fire. As opposed to Jeremiah, who says in Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16, your words were found and I ate them and your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Without the Holy Spirit, you and I would be like Absalom looking to overthrow the one who's on the throne, the Lord Jesus Christ most ultimately. We would want to overthrow him, and we would want to place ourselves upon the throne. The beautiful fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, love, joy, God-honoring, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, they would vanish. The God-honoring ones, you could have natural ones, but we're talking about the God-honoring ones that are wrought by the Holy Spirit. Those would vanish and they'd be replaced by the works of the flesh. Instead of being transformed by the renewing of your mind, you would be conformed to this world. And the list could go on. Do you understand the difference that the Holy Spirit makes? It is better for you that Jesus has ascended and he's poured out his Holy Spirit upon the church and now you have Christ in you, the hope of glory. If you love the things of Christ, if you believe that he died for your sins, if you believe that he rose from the grave, if you believe that his word is true, if you desire to follow him, if you love holiness, if you're no longer a slave to sin, if you're desiring to follow him, this is all because the Holy Spirit is inside of you. 
It's the difference that the Holy Spirit makes. See, if we don't realize how dependent we are upon the Holy Spirit, we will have, A, a false view of human nature. We would think, I would get it. I mean, I get it now. Jesus died for my sins. He rose from the grave. And if I didn't have the Holy Spirit, I'd get it. It's simple, it's simple arithmetic, right? Prophecies were declared. Prophecies were fulfilled. Of course I would believe it. Evidence in history. Evidence in, in internal evidence of the Scripture. Manuscript evidence. Of course I'd believe it. No, you wouldn't. You'd suppress it. And you'd believe a lie. Some would believe different lies than others. Some would dive into the works of the flesh and they would have those works of the flesh be more presentable than others. Some works of the flesh would be religious looking. Other works of the flesh would be pious sounding, but all of it would be flesh. So again, I say, if we don't realize how dependent we are upon the Holy Spirit, we will A, have a false view of human nature. B, we will have an improper view of our capability, or namely lack thereof, to please God in the flesh. And C, we will underappreciate the great grace that not only saves us and changes us, but preserves us. You will be a Christian tomorrow because the Holy Spirit is still inside of you, and Christ is still at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. You take those variables out of the equation, you wouldn't be a Christian by the end of the service. Good possibility, you'd just walk out. If you stayed here out of politeness, you would just have unbelief stewing in your mind. That's the difference that the Holy Spirit makes. To God be the glory for our salvation and for our preservation. As in the book of Acts, just again to this context, if they didn't wait in Jerusalem, the book of Acts would be a completely different book. If they didn't wait for the Holy Spirit, it wouldn't, I don't think it would be that, that long of a book. It would probably be a very short book. They'd probably be like those Israelites who would go into battle when they shouldn't have gone into battle and they lost, so it probably would be a really short account. But what you see happening in the book of Acts subsequently, when they are filled with the Holy Spirit and they go, it's a result of the grace of God and the power of Christ working through them, through the person of the Holy Spirit. I do think there's something else that we could see here too. I do think we could be reminded that in God's plan... Oftentimes, waiting is part of that equation for us. I don't know if the disciples thought, really? Like, we have to wait in Jerusalem? How, does anybody know how long we're waiting in Jerusalem for, by the way? Are we going to be waiting for a while? Is this like a day thing? Is this three days? Is this like, you know, how, how long is this going to be? I don't, know if they, I don't know if they understood how long it was going to be. They just knew they had to wait. And part of the Christian life, it's good for us to know this, is that waiting will often be a part of your walk with God. And I know that's not something that we're, you know, typically fans of, you don't hear somebody in the bank on a long line saying, this is awesome. <laughs> this is great. It'd be kind of funny if you did, right? You're like standing behind the guy, like, I like that guy. I want to be like that guy. You know, you don't go on the Staten Island Expressway and then you run into traffic around Bradley Avenue and look at your family and say, guys, this is what I was telling you about. This is going to be good. This is going to be great. We don't like waiting, generally speaking, right? By default, we typically do not like waiting. I read how one pastor had said, have you ever heard of the American prayer? It goes this way, Lord, give me patience, and I want it right now. <laughs> it, it does kind of reflect our hearts, right? If I'm going to pray for that. I mean, just give it to me so that you know, I don't have to be impatient in my waiting for patience. But waiting is often a part of God's plans and his design for his people. It's just a good reminder that God's time frame is not our time frame, right? If Jesus told you to wait in Jerusalem, you'd probably want to say, okay, well, how long is it going to be? Ten, does it have to be 10 days? 
Why 10 days? Can it be sooner, right? But oftentimes, God, for reasons that we don't necessarily know, will have waiting to be a part of the equation. Pentecost was the appointed time. That was the appointed time. And maybe there were things that he taught them while they were waiting. Perhaps they were to be reminded of their dependency upon him. That waiting there during those 10 days would be a reminder that they were so dependent upon him. You can't go out and you can't do what he said you were going to do. Be his witnesses, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. You can't do that without him, the person of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps there was an element of them overcoming fears. Think where they were waiting in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was not exactly friendly to Jesus and his followers. The disciples knew that. Even when they made their way to Jerusalem, they understood that it likely included a death sentence going there. And yet they'd have to wait there for 10 days. Whatever it was, they had to wait in that place that, as Jesus said, kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. Matthew 23, verse 37. And although we may not understand God's timetable, it doesn't mean that there's not an infinitely wise rationale to the waiting. There always is. And we continue in verse 5, and Jesus told his disciples, For truly John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus is calling to mind the ministry of John the Baptist. During John's ministry, John made the same comparison that Jesus made. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, John the Baptist speaking, we read, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Jesus was essentially saying that moment that John prophesied of, that moment of being baptized, being immersed with the Holy Spirit, even as John had immersed those who had come to him to be baptized in water, that moment is near. The same Jesus who is about to ascend into heaven would be the same Jesus who would baptize them with the Holy Spirit from heaven. John knew that. I baptize you with water. But the one who's coming after me, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's going to fill you and you're going to be immersed with the Holy Spirit. Now, we'll talk about the details of that a little bit more when we get to Acts chapter 2. I do want us to understand, as New Testament Christians, you get outside of the book of Acts, and you start looking in the New Testament epistles, and the implication that you clearly see is that when somebody comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, they have been immersed into the body of Christ through the Holy Spirit. To use language from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, For by one Spirit... We were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. So the reality that the apostles were waiting for in a very unique way in that historical context has become the reality experientially as far as being filled with the Holy Spirit and immersed into the body of Christ upon conversion for everyone who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a lot more to be said about that, but I'll wait until we get into the opening verses of Acts chapter 2 to dive into that in further detail. Now we come to a question that the disciples had. They know Jesus is getting ready to depart. At least that's what's going to become very clear to them in a moment. But they have a question. This is what's on their minds. Verses 6, and I'm going to read verse 7 as well. 
Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. So for 40 days, we saw this in the opening verses of the prologue, we saw Jesus spoke to his disciples concerning the kingdom. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. So doubtless, they learned much, doubtless they were prepared much, yet here they are nonetheless with, notice what kind of question they have. They have a timeline question. And I think it makes sense that they would have this timeline question because Jesus was talking about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And when you look at Old Testament texts, like Joel chapter 2 or Ezekiel 36 that spoke about the coming of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit being poured out, oftentimes when you look in the surrounding context, the idea of the national restoration of Israel is connected. So you can see the logical connection in their minds. Okay, you're speaking about the Holy Spirit coming. Does that mean then that now is the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, we've been under Roman rule. We haven't had a king. It hasn't been like it was in the days of David and subsequent kings for a long time. Are you going to restore that back? Is the Davidic king going to reign from Jerusalem? Is Israel going to become a free nation again, elevated above the nations of the earth? Are those pictures in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, of, of, of Jerusalem being elevated and the nations flowing to Jerusalem, is this going to happen now? It was a timeline question that they had. The word restore also connotes that they were looking for the restoration of something that had ended. And it had ended, the kingdom had ended in the way it was because of rebellion and sinfulness. And they were wondering, okay, is it going to be restored? They're expecting some measure of continuity, that the time is going to come when the kingdom will be restored to Israel. Now, there are those who believe the apostles' um, question supposes an entirely wrong understanding about the kingdom. And there are good brothers who would, who, who would think that. Um, I don't think that. I don't think that was the case. I think, as I just kind of laid out to you in brief detail, I think there was a completely legitimate reason for them to expect a national, visible, earthly kingdom. You hear about the Holy Spirit in Jewish mind, and you're like, well, isn't that connected with the restoration of the kingdom? Just look around the surrounding context. Ezekiel 36, look at Ezekiel 37. Joel 2, look at Joel 3. And you'll kind of see how that kind of blends together. Furthermore, don't forget what the disciples themselves had been told. Jesus had told them in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, this is talking about when Jesus returns, when He comes to earth, and there's a kind of vivification of the earth, a kind of changing of the topography. When the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, Jesus told them, You who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So I think there's a good reason here to think that at this point, they have, they have a, to a degree, a proper understanding that, look, something like this is supposed to happen. There's supposed to be some visible earthly kingdom that's going to come. I don't think they necessarily understood at this moment the broad scope of the kingdom. That it would be global and not simply relegated to a limited geographical location. Though the king was depicted as reigning in Jerusalem, but his reign would be over all the earth. 
Maybe they did not realize at this moment. I don't think that they did. I think it would be part of what happens when the Holy Spirit would come, that they would come to understand in greater degree that Gentiles would be engrafted into the vine of Israel and so on. But I don't think that they were wrong to expect a visible kingdom when the Jewish Messiah would reign in and from Jerusalem, even as was prophesied. Take, for example, Zechariah 14. Let's walk through these verses together. Let's see what we can gather. If you look at verse 6, I first want you to see that the question that they asked was a matter of timing, right? Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So they're not asking a what question. They're asking a when question. Their presupposition is that's going to happen. And they may not understand all the details of how that works under the new covenant and so on, but their expectation is that that's going to happen. It's not a what question, it's a when question. And now secondly, when you look at verse 7, look at Jesus' response. Jesus' response addresses the issue of timing. He says, it is not for you to know what? Times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Just kind of walking through the verses, if they were completely off in their thinking, if they were completely off in their presupposition, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Wouldn't we expect, this would just be my thinking, wouldn't we more likely expect Jesus to say, well, you got a wrong understanding. How long have I been with you and you do not understand the nature of the kingdom? The nature of the kingdom is not a restoration of the kingdom to Israel. That has nothing to do with it. Jesus doesn't say that there. This would have been the perfect opportunity to do that. So just from my vantage point, when I'm looking at it, they ask a question about timing and Jesus answers the question, With respect to that issue, timing, it's not for you to know. I think that that suggests that they were right in their understanding. It just wasn't right for them to know the time. I mean, if this was a topic that Jesus wanted them to be right about and to get, you would think that he would have corrected it if their presupposition about the kingdom being restored to Israel and the Jewish king reigning from Jerusalem over his believing people, Jews and Gentiles alike, forming one new man in Christ Jesus, but him nonetheless being the Jewish king who's reigning from Jerusalem, if he he didn't think that they should have had that kind of presupposition, I would think he would have corrected them with that. But instead what he does is he just speaks of timing, as though to say that kingdom is going to be restored. It's just not for you to know when. I think that's instructive in many ways. What Jesus did, and you'll see this in verse 8 as well, He refocused their attention. I would argue, at least looking at these verses, he didn't redefine the nature of the coming kingdom. He redirected their attention to what he had called them to be and the mission that was before them. We're going to see that in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I do think there's a practical takeaway here that we should not miss. Sometimes in Christian circles, there could be those Christians who could become so smitten with eschatological concerns, last days, end times things, that they become distracted from their ministerial responsibilities. Granted, this could be hyperbole, I know, but you don't want to be somebody who's got like whiteboards and blackboards in your house with all timelines of how this could play out and he might be the Antichrist and this is what might happen and this nation might come against that nation and this is how it's going to work out. You become so consumed with things like that. You watch YouTube videos all day about end times. You become so smitten with those things, drawing out all end times, chronological possibilities, all the while your family goes undiscipled and your neighbors go unevangelized. 
you don't want to do that. You, want, you don't want to do that. You don't want to be that kind of person. Let, let me try to make it hit a little bit more closer to home for us in the world in which we're living. You could do a great job prepping for the coming famine, for coming hardships, for coming calamities. You might say, I think the mark of the beast is on the way. So I'm going to do everything I can to prep for what's going on and what's going on in the world and what might be coming that you become so distracted from your ministerial responsibilities in the present. And Jesus is talking to his his disciples. They're concerned about something that is eschatological. They don't realize that at this point, maybe, that it's going to be an end time thing that's going to happen. And Jesus redirects their focus from away from those end time things to their responsibility in the moment. You are going to be my witness. And you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. While you and I are called to look and wait for the coming of the Lord, you and I are not called to set dates. It's not for us to know that. The times and seasons are fixed by the Father. They are in His hands. There's been a lot of people who have ignored Jesus' words here. I could go through a whole bunch of examples. I could tell you about Charles Taze Russell, founder of Jehovah's Witnesses, and his false prophecy about Jesus' return in 1874 and the nature of that return. I could tell you about the many false prophecies that were made by the Jehovah's Witness organization. I could remind you, some of you are familiar with Harold Camping and the multiple false prophecies that he made, the timelines that he construed to erroneously prove an erroneous case that Jesus Christ was returning on specific dates. And the examples could go on. There's no shortage in Christian history, professing Christian history, and in the history of cults, there's no shortage of people trying to predict when Jesus is going to return. Jesus says right here, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. And I just want to say, by way of comfort and encouragement to all of you, to myself as well, Thanks be to God that the times and seasons are in the Father's hands. Thanks be to God that they're not in our hands. Think about that. If you were were thinking wisely, I know there are moments in our lives where we're like, oh, I would love if the times and seasons were in my hands. You you see what I do right now. See what I do in my own life. You see what I do geopolitically. You see what I do here and there. You don't want the times and seasons in your hands. You can't handle it. Do not trust your supposed wisdom and righteousness to think that you'd be able to wield such power. Give thanks to God that the times and seasons are not in your hands. I think Spurgeon uh, put it well. He said, if the times could be in my hand, how earnestly I would pray that Christ would take them into his hand or that the Father would take away from me the dangerous power and wield it all himself. So when you and I look at verse 7, it's not just Jesus responding to a question that the disciples had. I think we should see it and say, Amen, thanks be to God. It should lead us to say like David did in Psalm 31, to pray like he prayed, but as for me, I trust in you, O Lord, or O Yahweh. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Psalm 31, verses 14 and beginning of 15. Now we come to how he redirects them. So he not only tells them it's not for you to know, that that's like not your business here, but this is what is your business. Verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So first you might say there's some measure of prophetic consolation here. What do I mean by that? He tells them, 
You're not going to know the times and seasons, but here's the consolation. You're going to have power. The power of the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And oh, the difference that that would make in their lives. Oh, the difference that would make for them morally and spiritually. Oh, the difference that that would make for them ministerially. You go through the book of Acts and you see the apostles in some instances doing amazing things, not by their own hand, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ working through His Spirit because the Holy Spirit came upon them. I do want to note this. I'll note this now because we'll see as we go through the book of Acts. One of the um, witnesses to the presence of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the apostles, and you'll see this in the book of Acts, is the boldness with which they spoke. Right? Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and what happened? He preached, and he boldly proclaimed Christ. You'll see in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, that when the disciples and the apostles had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. I'm not saying being filled with the Holy Spirit is limited to that. I'm not saying that. I'm saying there's an overt connection with that as we look in the book of Acts, that the Spirit would come and they would be filled with power, and part of that power would be illustrated in their boldness. Think about even what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear. Remember when we looked at that Greek word, the idea of that Greek word was timidity. He's not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. So when you think about the Holy Spirit filling a person, part of what that's going to look like, yes, the fruits of the Spirit, yes, for the apostles, they were going to have the word that they preached confirmed with signs and wonders. But part of what it's going to look like for a person now, even as it looked like for them then, was to be filled with boldness. Boldness. I do think, though, Jesus is also expanding the horizon of their understanding. If you look at their question, what are they thinking about? Will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? I think part of what he's doing here, he's expanding the locus of their understanding. I want you to think bigger. You're thinking too ethnocentrically, if you will. You're thinking just too about the nation of Israel being restored. This kingdom is going global. And it's not going to work out at this point the way you think it is. Because they were probably thinking at this point, it's going to look like the nation's flowing to Jerusalem. But ultimately, it was going to look like them going out from Jerusalem, the apostles and the church. And we'll see more of that because, you know, the apostles, when the church was persecuted, stayed in Jerusalem and the church scattered from there. So we'll get into those details. But the gospel was going to go from Jerusalem to Samaria, to Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. But the mission was going to start there. I think he's expanding their horizon. A couple notes here I just wanted to bring out to you. I thought it was edifying. Um, Jesus said, in all Judea and Samaria. So think of Jerusalem, capital city. Think of Judea as the surrounding territory. So if you're like, I'm not sure where these locations are, let me just kind of verbally try to paint the picture for you on a map, right? So you have Jerusalem in the southern part of the ancient land of Israel. Judea would be the area, the land area, in the southern part of Israel. As you would go north from Jerusalem and Judea, in the center of the ancient land of Israel would be Samaria. Galilee would be up north. So now you got a little bit of a picture of what it looked like. And he's telling them, you're going to go from Jerusalem to Judea, surrounding Jewish territory, and to Samaria. You're going to break some social boundaries. Remember what the woman at the well told Jesus? Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The disciples saw that Jesus did, though. 
He sat there and ministered to a woman at the well. Oh, he broke those social boundaries. He ministered to her, revealed his identity to her, as a matter of fact. He healed the Samaritan leper. Remember, the Samaritan leper was the only one who came back to give glory to God. That leper who came back was a Samaritan. Luke 17, verse 16. Jesus preached to Samaritans. Like, yeah, he ministered to the woman at the well, but didn't stop there. You go on John chapter 4, look at verses 40 through 42, and he preached to Samaritans. He broke boundaries in that way. We're not just going to think ethnocentrically. Yeah, the people of those days might have looked like, the Jewish people might have looked at at the Samaritans as half-breeds. No, they are people that need the gospel. And he ministered to them, and they were going to do likewise. And it wasn't just going to be Samaritans. They were going to go to every non-Jew that they could, people like probably the majority, if not all of us in this room, Gentiles. And they were going to bring the gospel to the end of the earth, one example of which, at least as it's depicted in the book of Acts, would be Rome. It has been noted many times, so I will note it to you. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8 does kind of serve as a little bit of a thematic way of seeing the book of Acts. That as you look in the opening seven verses, you're going to be dealing with Jerusalem. As you go beyond there, you're going to see the gospel go beyond there into Samaria. And then ultimately, through the Apostle Paul's missionary work in Acts 13 to 28, you're going to see it start going to the uttermost parts of the earth. So we can see it's a little thematic in that way. I will, I will call your attention to one other thing here. Notice what Jesus said that they would be. You would be my what? Witnesses to me. Or as older manuscripts say, my witnesses. That's interesting language. Because that's language that the Father used to speak of people being witnesses of Him in Old Testament contexts. Remember Isaiah 43 verse 10, You are my witnesses, says Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. In Isaiah 44, verse 8, Do not fear, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. Is Jesus then making a witness to deity with making that statement? Face value, it appears so. Well, what were they going to be witnesses of? The word witnesses here is a noun, would become associated with martyrs in the days ahead. One who bears witness of something, but we know that that word would become associated with martyrs because so many who bore witness of Christ would end up shedding their blood. They were going to bear witness of the life of Christ, the teachings of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and they would bear witness of the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this mission could only be accomplished through the Holy Spirit. That's why they had to wait in Jerusalem. If they didn't, it'd be like going to put out fires without water. It's not going to work. Now, quick note, as I look at the time and I look at the verses that are before us, the amazing verses that deal with the ascension, um, I, will, I will hold off on those until next week because those verses are, are precious. When you think about what the disciples saw with their very eyes, imagine you're standing there and all of a sudden Jesus just begins, after he's finished speaking, to just rise He doesn't vanish from their eyes. He begins to rise from their very presence. The same Jesus who was born in a lowly manger is the same Jesus who is carried to heaven in great glory. And there's so much to be discussed there, but I'll wait until Lord willing next week to get into that.
I'll close today with saying, I just want to bear witness to you of what Christ has done so that if you have not come to believe what he has done, that you might, and that you might become witnesses of this great gospel. These apostles were going to give their lives. John is the only apostle, as I noted last week, there's a question about how he may have died. Did he die naturally, or did he die a martyr's death? But they were going to give their lives, and they were going to suffer because they believed that Jesus Christ was the way, the truth, and the life. That he died for sinners, and that he rose from the grave. Whatever your history of sin has been, whatever your history of sins will be, there is one way in which they could all be forgiven. God in His great grace, for people like you and I who with lawless hands, we may not have put the Son of God to death as those did in the first century, at least some people, but we have sinned against Almighty God and God has made a way for us to be forgiven so that we could be where Jesus is. So I want to encourage you, if you have not come to the cross, may today be the day where you say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. I believe that He was born of a virgin. That He lived the perfect life that I can never live. He's the promised Messiah. These Old Testament prophets, whether it be Moses or Isaiah or Jeremiah, they spoke of Him. There was this glove that had to be fit perfectly and Christ fit it perfectly. He was the promised Messiah. He fit the blueprint. The blueprint described this one who would be born of the tribe of Judah, who would be a descendant of David, who would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, who would die on a cross, who would have his hands pierced, his side pierced, that they would gamble for his clothing. They would cast lots for his clothing. There was this one who would be all of these things and these things would happen to him and Christ fulfilled it so that you may know that he is the living son of God who died on the cross for your sins. That you may come to that place and say, I believe. I believe he died for my sins and I believe he rose from the grave and today by God's grace things change. And they don't change because you have the strength in and of yourself to change them. You do not. But the Holy Spirit does. And when, by the grace of God, when you believe the gospel, the Holy Spirit has already opened your eyes to that. He takes up residence inside of you, and you will begin, not perfectly, but you will begin to follow the Lord that you believe loved you and gave himself for you. Loved you with an everlasting love, bore what would have been your everlasting wrath, so that you could be with him for everlasting. Oh, what grace. May today be the day it hasn't been at some previous point. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that times and seasons are in your hands. We thank you that even as David prayed, my times, our times, are in your hands. We thank you for the gift of the person of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that the person of the Holy Spirit teaches us and illuminates our hearts and minds so that we might understand the Scriptures. We thank you that He bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. We thank you that He continues to illuminate our minds and to work in us both to will and to do your good pleasure. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would impress the truths that we saw today in your word upon the hearts of your people. I pray, Heavenly Father, that going out from this place, that everyone in this room who is in Christ might think afresh, even this day, how can I be a witness in my Jerusalem? How can I be a witness in Judea, as it were, in Samaria, and even to the uttermost parts of the earth? Father, I pray and we pray that in a fresh way, empowered by your Holy Spirit, you might use us to be witnesses of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. 
That we might be witnesses, as it were, of his teaching and of his life. And that we might be witnesses that he is the only way to the Father. Oh, Father, might you empower your people afresh today to be witnesses. And if there be anyone in this room who has not seen, as it were, with their eyes, through the eyes of faith that Jesus Christ is Lord, may today be the day and may a new beginning begin. And may sins, both past, present, and future, be paid for, as it were, washed away as righteousness is credited to their account in that moment and their sin debt alleviated because righteousness is impugned to their account, forgiven they are in the family of God and they go on by your grace to follow you and bear fruit for you. May it be, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.